listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. You saw the, the advertisement. Take a minute to share. It's important. I'm going to talk about one question today, one question that is a devastating question that, uh, and and I, I debated on whether to use this term because I thought, you know, there might be people that don't know what this term means, but I'll explain it on the broadcast. I said Baptists in the title because more people will know the term Baptist than will know the term Calvinist or Reformed Um, you know, reformed Christian, reformed believer, whatever. But most of the, like the Southern Baptists, you know, Baptists like that are going to be what we would call reformed or Calvinist Baptists. I'll talk about that. But they always, and I've had it a lot. The reason I'm dealing with this, it's not some side issue. You have it a lot. You'll be questioned a lot. We've had people on on the broadcast that are like, Uh, You know, my previous pastor uh, hammered me for being Pentecostal, hammered me for uh, believing in signs, wonders, miracles, speaking in tongues, all these different things. Um, Hey, Faith. And uh, these are Calvinists. These are uh, Reformed, whether they're Reformed Presbyterians, Baptists, whatever. It's a style of theology that um, really is contradictory to what we would believe as Pentecostals as charismatics. And so people that hold that theology, they believe it, man, they, they try to hammer us on every turn and I'll see it. The reason I'm dealing with it, not that I care about, uh, people bashing us. I don't care about people bashing us. I don't care about, um, you know, people mocking us or any of that stuff. But what I do try to accomplish is what the Bible teaches us to do, which is if somebody were to approach you genuinely with a question, about why you believe what you believe as a Pentecostal, as a charismatic, how would you be able to answer that person's question? Because Peter, the apostle, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instructed Christians to be able to make a defense. This is 1 Peter 3.15, to make a defense for those, to have an answer ready for those who have questions regarding the hope that lies within you. So there is uh, an aspect of this where we need to know why we believe what we believe and we need to be able to give an answer or at least point out some of the reasons why we don't believe that way. Today, I'm going to give you what I believe to be the foundational one. This is, in my opinion, the most important question that really, The the reason I use the word devastating is because I believe it devastates that theology at its core, at its foundation. And I don't believe that you need to go any further than this one question that I'm going to give you today because it, it lies at the foundation of that theology. And I believe it devastates the character and the nature of God if you believe like they do. And I'm going to tell you what they say about it. And I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about it. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be very important to, to get this. There's my nephew, Alex, who's doing a great job. 
<laughs> the question is, who do you think, who do you think you are? Um, but we're going to start in a couple of passages today. I'm going to give you scriptures, but first, before we get there, there's people watching, there's people listening that don't really understand the perspective I'm talking about. They don't know what it means. They don't know what a, a reformed believer is. They don't know what a Calvinist would believe. I will explain it to you. I will not do it any, uh, you know, I, I won't, I won't skew it from the Pentecost. I won't demonize it. I'm just going to give it to you. And I think I can faithfully do that, uh, without any misinterpretation. I've read a lot of the Calvinist writers. I've read a lot of the, uh, of the reformed th theologians and I understand what, what that, what their position is. So in regards to salvation, right? Let's talk about salvation. If you've ever heard anything regarding Calvinism, um, Regard, in regards to salvation, you'll understand that there are five points of Calvinism. If you've never heard this before, this will be an easy rundown for you. Uh, Sissy, this is apologetics. So these are the five points of Calvinism in regards to salvation. They are explained, as many of you know, by the uh, acrostic, I believe that's what you call it, right? An acrostic, TULIP, the acronym TULIP. You know how people used to do acrostics and they'd take a word and they'd make a word out of each letter in the word? That's what this is. Uh, they use the, the word tulip, like the flower, to explain or to list all five points of Calvinism. What are they? Let me just tell you what the five points are and give you a brief definition of what each one means in regard to salvation so you can understand it. There are two opposing belief systems about salvation. Pentecostals, and charismatics believe in, and I'm going to use these big theological terms. They're not, don't be confused by them. It's easy to understand. Uh, the first type, which we believe it's called synergistic salvation, synergy. All that means is God has a part and we have a part and we work together with God in order to receive our salvation. Now I'm not saying when I say we work together, I don't mean that we produce works. We're not saved by works. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. There are no works that can purchase your salvation that could even have caught forced God to send you salvation. I don't believe in works based salvation. I don't believe that at all. I believe we're saved as the Bible says by grace through faith. It's not of any work of our own, lest any man should boast. The Bible says we can't boast about acquiring our salvation. We didn't buy it. We didn't get it for ourselves. We didn't do anything to even have God send Jesus. But on the other hand, those of us that are Pentecostals and charismatics, we do believe that there's a responsibility that we have to respond to God. When God presents us with salvation, we have the ability or the responsibility to respond to God and to respond to his call and to respond to the gospel. Calvinists don't believe that. And you know, reformed Christians, they don't believe that they rather than synergistic salvation, they believe in something called monergistic mono, meaning one, one sided, one sided salvation, which means God does all of the work himself and there's nothing required of you. There's nothing required of any uh, person who receives their uh, salvation through election. They, nothing's required of you. 
And I'll explain that when we break down the five points of Calvinism. So Pentecostals and Charismatics believe that we have a responsibility to respond to the call of God when it comes to salvation. We respond to the gospel. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead. We, we believe that we have the ability to do that once the gospel has come to us. We believe that the gospel, as Paul taught, is the power of God unto salvation. That's Romans 1, 16. Romans 1, 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel empowers a man or a woman to be saved. And once the gospel has come, then we have a responsibility to respond to that gospel, not reject it, not, not throw it to the side, but to believe it and to receive it. Now, here's where I'll break it down so you can see the two beliefs about salvation. We believe that we have a responsibility to respond to God's call, to the gospel, whereas Calvinists or those that are Reformed, you know, whatever be it, Reformed Baptist, Reformed Presbyterian, whatever, they believe that there is nothing. It's not that you don't have a responsibility to do so. You don't even have the ability to do so, right? So I'll break that down in a moment, but they believe that not only can you not, you, you, you don't have the ability. Even if you heard the gospel a thousand times, listen, listen to this now. Even if you heard the gospel in their opinion, in their view, even if you heard the gospel a thousand times, a thousand times out of a thousand, you would reject the gospel because you've got no ability to believe the gospel as a, as a fallen human. You've got zero ability to believe and receive the gospel of Christ. And so God has to do it all because if God didn't do it, then no human would be able to be saved. That's what they believe. And I'll break that down uh, for you. All right. Are you ready for this? So now let me, let me give you quickly and a brief description of the five points of Calvinism, what they believe about fallen man and salvation, what God does for man to bring him into the kingdom of God. Okay. As I told you, we use the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P to remember the five points of Calvinism. Let me break them down and give you a definition. You can put these in the comments if you'd like. T stands for TULIP, or excuse me, TULIP is the acronym. T stands for total depravity, total depravity. So this is the first point, and, and I, it would be good for you to understand that all of these five points of Calvinism, they're very much like dominoes. And even Calvinists agree about this, and I'll explain that in a minute. Each one depends on the other. Each one depends on the other, which you'll see in a moment. T is total depravity. What that means is that fallen man is totally depraved in his nature, meaning he's so far dead in his trespasses and in his sins that it would not matter 
if he heard the gospel a thousand times, as I said a moment ago, it wouldn't matter if he heard the gospel a hundred thousand times because they believe man is so totally depraved in his nature, dead in trespasses and in sins. Um, the things of God are foolishness unto him. Uh, he's at enmity with God or he's an enemy of God because that's the way they look at fallen man. That first point is a foundational point that man is so totally depraved in his nature that he could not respond to the gospel ever. You are dead in trespasses and sins and a dead person cannot make. Yes, this is, is very old. Richard, Richard McLeod says, is, is this old? It's a very old doctrine. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's 400 years old, but we're still dealing with this today. He might've managed this an old broadcast, <laughs> but it is an old doctrine. Um, so meaning Kelly, as Kelly put in the comments, total depravity, fallen man is so totally depraved in his nature. He's dead in trespass and sins. The Bible does say that. And he's at enmity with God. The Bible does say that. And that he, the things of God are foolishness unto him. The Bible does say that they believe that there's, it, it doesn't matter how many times you hear the gospel as a sinner, you in and of yourself cannot respond to God. You cannot believe in God. You cannot confess Jesus as Lord. You can't believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead because the things of the spirit are foolishness unto you. You're at enmity with God. You're dead in trespasses and sins. And so because that's the first point, all the other points then expand upon that and they depend upon that point, right? So if we move on to the second point of Calvinism, which is you, it stands for unconditional election. That's what you stands for. Unconditional election. Are you ready for this? So because man is so depraved, so dead in trespasses and sins, cannot respond to God. Unconditional election is necessary in order for men to be saved. Because if if a man cannot choose, a woman cannot choose to respond to the gospel of God, then it would take God doing his part all by himself in order to bring a man or woman into salvation, to regenerate the spirit, to bring them into the kingdom of God. And so how does God do that? By unconditional election. Now let's break that term down. What does it mean? What does it mean? Unconditional, meaning it has nothing to do with you. Has nothing, yes we are Karen, has nothing to do with your actions, with what you've done, any previous works of your own, none of those things. And then election means God's choosing. So before the beginning of time, before the foundations of time, God looked through the tunnel of time and he made his choice about who would be saved and who would not be saved. And then he chose certain people and he did not choose other people. This is not based in, in their mind. Get this now in the, in the mind of the Calvinist, the reformed theologian, the ba- Southern Baptist, whatever it is, reformed Presbyterian. Okay. In their, in their theology, in their mind, God, not based on anything, any individual would ever do, or his knowledge of what they would do, 
He simply chooses them. He elects them and says, these will be my people, but these will not. These will be my people, but these will not be my people. He chooses them not based on anything that they would do, but based on his own choice, right? Loves them, picks them based on his own sovereign choice, not by anything they would do. So that's you. It's an unconditional election. It's an unconditional election. Okay, so God makes a choice. We're still, remember, they believe it's a one-sided salvation. God does all the work, does everything. Nothing depends on the person. Let's move on to number three. So total depravity of man, unconditional election. And then here's the point that people have a hard time with. Even Calvinists do. L, limited atonement. I'm going to break this down for you. Limited atonement. Now, I'm going to give you some more commentary here because it's important that you understand this. Limited atonement means that when Jesus Christ shed his blood, he did not shed it for every person from eternity to future. Limited atonement says Jesus blood is not for everybody. Limited atonement states that Jesus blood was only shed for the people that God elected unconditionally. So as God looked through the tunnel of time and he said, I'm going to choose group A to be my people and group B, I will not choose. So now when Jesus comes, he sheds his blood, but only for group A, because those are the people that Jesus or that God chose. And so now those are the only people he elected. And so because of that, it's the only people that he has shed his blood for so that his blood will never fall to the ground and be ineffective because some person from group B didn't choose to respond to the gospel. And so they say, well, if Jesus shed his blood for everybody, then how come it's ineffective for so many? Why is this? Why is the path straight and narrow? Why are few there be that find it? If, if Jesus shed his blood for everybody, then he failed for those that rejected him, but he He only succeeded for those that accepted him. And that's their position. That limited atonement is Jesus' blood only shed for God's elect, for those who were unconditionally chosen by God ahead of time. Now, let me stop here and say this is a point where some Calvinists have a problem. They don't, they're uncomfortable with the third point of Calvinism. They say, well, I don't necessarily believe that, you know, God's, uh, God sent Jesus only for a select few, uh, group of people. And so there was a, there's a split. And here's the interesting thing in the camp of Calvinists and reformed theologians. There's a split between what we would call four point Calvinists and five point Calvinists. Five-point Calvinists hold to all of these things in TULIP that I'm telling you, all of them. Whereas four-point Calvinists say, well, we believe that man is totally depraved. We believe that he's unconditionally elected, but we don't necessarily believe in limited atonement. 
We don't limit Jesus blood to only the elect. And so they've, in some senses, they've broken away from the five point Calvinists because they won't believe in this one. They won't, they, they just won't hold to this third point of Calvinism. Well, the problem there, as I've heard, uh, R.C. Sproul and other, other reformed theologians who obviously, I mean, R.C. Sproul was, was no dummy. He's in heaven now, uh, if he was one of God's elect and he's, he's in heaven now. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but he makes this point. And I think it's an interesting point that, uh, people who really have a problem with limited atonement, he said, you know, they really, if they would think about it, they don't really have a problem with limited atonement. The real problem they have is with the previous point, unconditional election, because if they truly understood that, then they wouldn't have any problem understanding limited atonement because the real problem that offends the four point Calvinist is that God made a choice. That's the point that offends them. Well, what do you mean? Jesus blood isn't for everybody. Well, God already made a choice in their eyes. He already chose some certain people and left others, the majority of others unchosen. So if you're really thinking through it logically, that's the problem they really have is that God didn't choose everybody because if you understand that, then you've got no problem believing if he chose a certain group, then he sent Jesus to shed his blood for that certain group. And so R.C. Sproul said, it's pretty foolish. He said, and, and, and this is what he, this was, I believe his quote, any logical thinking Calvinist is a five point Calvinist. Because you can't say you hold to number two, unlimited or unconditional election, and and say you don't hold to number three. Because as I said at the beginning, they're dominoes. They all work together. They all depend upon each other. So if God did elect a group of people, how would he bring about their salvation unless Jesus shed his blood for that group of people? You see what I mean? So we've covered three of the five points. T, total depravity of man, you, the unconditional election of his people. Number three, limited atonement. That is the shedding of Jesus blood only for the elect that he chose before the foundations of the world. And then number four, the I in TULIP. I stands for irresistible grace, irresistible grace. That is the fourth point of Calvinism. That, and, and I'll explain to you what that means. Irresistible grace means, again, remember, this is all from their one-sided salvation. God does all the parts. You have no responsibilities. You have, you have no responsibilities at all to step into salvation. So point four, I, irresistible grace. What does that mean? It means that when, when God ensures that the gospel message comes to you and he will, he will make sure that the gospel message comes to you. If you are his chosen people, because you have to be saved because he chose you. So he will make sure in his sovereign plan that the gospel message comes to your ears at some point in your life. 
And when it does, that grace will be irresistible. What does that mean? It means that the sinner who, who, who is elect, who hears that gospel, will not be able to resist that gospel message. They will believe and they will repent and they will come into the kingdom of God being regenerated. Why will they? Because God elected them. And because he elected them, Jesus' blood was shed for them. And because Jesus' blood was shed for them, the gospel will come to them. And when the gospel comes to them, they won't be able to resist it. They will believe and be baptized and they will come into the kingdom of God. Because point four, his grace is irresistible, irresistible grace. It just means that you can't hear the gospel message as an elect member of, of God's choosing and say, well, no, I'm not going to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I'm not going to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. You can't do that. It's impossible in their mind because God's already chosen you to be his own people. And because he has, you've got no choice in the matter. You've got no choice in the matter. You can't choose to do whatever you want. God's sovereign decree will come to pass whether you like it or not. And of course, if, if you really believe that he's, he's adjusting your heart through his sovereign decree so that you will want to respond and you do respond because he's elected you to respond and his grace will be irresistible to you. And that's, that's where they're at now. Still on one side, it's all God. You're totally depraved. God is doing all of these things in a monergistic salvation, a one-sided salvation. And so number four, that irresistible grace means you will not reject the gospel. You will not reject the gospel if you are God's elect. Let me give you number five. The fifth point of Calvinism is the perseverance of the saints. P stands for perseverance of the saints. And we're going to get to this because I'm going to give you this one question that destroys all of this. It destroys it. Write it in the comments. P, the fifth point, the perseverance of the saints. And I want you to, uh, I'll give you the, um, let me give you the uh, definition. The perseverance of the saint, I'm sorry, I'm searching something else here. The perseverance of the saint simply means that once, you know, you've been elected from the beginning of time. Once the gospel comes to you, once you cannot resist it, you come into the kingdom. All the perseverance of the saints means is that from that point until you die, or from that point until the second coming of Christ, whatever, you will persevere with actions of holiness, that you will not fall back into sin or live a life of sin. You will persevere in holiness, in right actions before God, because he's elected you. Now, here's, here's something weird. Um, that I want to show you. And that is the, uh, 
that is, when you think about this perseverance of the saints, it's kind of funny to me because, (laughs) you know, those that believe in a once saved, always saved doctrine, which reformed people do, they have to, because if you're elect, you, God can't fail in his election. You have to make it to heaven. So it's funny because they'll say, well, we don't believe that people can backslide. (laughs) Hey, Christian, love you too. We don't believe people backslide, right? So the funny thing is we can see the same thing happening, you know, in practicality, in real life, you might see somebody that, you know, leaves the church, leaves the faith, whatever. Well, Pentecostals and Charismatics, you know what they would say? Well, they, they are a backslider. They departed from the faith. They, uh, and if they continue on in that, uh, that life that they're living, then they've, they've forfeited their salvation and they have lost their salvation. Whereas Calvinists would say, no, no, that's impossible. A person who's elect can't lose their salvation. If a person does what you're describing, if they depart from the faith, if they leave us or what, and they've got scriptures to, to use, to back this up, they believe. And, and I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. I'm saying that we would look at it differently. You know, they left us because they were never really part of us. Things that John said, um, they believe if you see someone backslide, leave the faith, whatever, their answer is that person was never really saved in the first place. That's their answer. They were never truly God's elect. It was a false conversion. It was a false conversion, right? And Nick, stick with me. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drop this question on here in a minute. And it's going to help those of you that are watching. Cause many of you have come into contact with this and will, especially as a Pentecostal or a charismatic who we, we constantly get bashed. Well, that was a false conversion. They weren't really saved. That's what they believe. And so I'll give you something on that as well. But think about this now. We believe the same thing happens, but we call it two different things. We say they lost their salvation. They've turned away. They've departed, departed from the faith. Apostasy. They would say, no, no, no. They were never truly saved in the first place. False conversion you know, we were, we may have been deceived by them for a little while, but we can clearly see by their actions that they were not elect. All right. On that fifth point, uh, I just want to read you this passage of scripture because it really, it makes sense. But let, let me read to you from John chapter 15, before I get into the one question that's devastating. Let's read from John, the gospel of John chapter 15. And I want to read you in context, the things that Jesus said here, starting with verse one and read down through. And I really, uh, I really want you to think about this deeply. If, if that's what those people believe, how could you explain this passage of scripture that Jesus himself taught? Okay. Listen to this. Now I'm starting in verse one of John 15 and I'm going to read down through till about, uh, verse 11, John 15, one through 11, an entire thought from Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, we finish here. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So a couple of questions I have for you here. Check this. Um, so there are vines in this passage. Jesus is the true vine. We're the branches, right? We're the branches. Here's a weird question that this is not the question of the broadcast, but this is something you need to think about. Jesus said here that every branch that's in him, every branch that's in him that does not bear fruit, the father takes it away, cuts it off of him. It cuts, God cuts that branch off of the vine and throws it into a pile to be burned. Here's an excellent question for you. First of all, Paul uses the terminology throughout his epistles in Christ, in him, in whom, speaking of Christians, there are, this, this is important for you to understand now. There are no sinners that are in Christ. None. There is no unsaved person that can be described as in Christ. There's nobody that's a sinner who is connected to the true vine. Nobody, nobody. That is something that you gain when you come into the kingdom of God. Now you're in Christ. If watch this now, I'll, I'll prove it by scripture. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five is one of those epistles that Paul wrote. If any man be in Christ, what is he? He is a new creation. Old things, they're passed away. All things have become new. So you can't be in Christ if you're a sinner. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is referencing people that are already in him. Do you notice that? He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So that means that you can be connected to Christ and still choose not to bear fruit. You can choose. What, what is the fruit? You shall know them by their fruit. It's your actions of righteousness. We're talking about the perseverance of the saints. It's your actions of righteousness. 
according to Jesus, you can be in him. You can be a branch that is in him, the vine, but choose not to bear fruit. And the Bible says when God sees a branch that continually refuses to bear fruit, what does he do? Cuts it off from the vine, throws it into a pile to be burned. Very interesting. So the question becomes, if you can't lose that salvation, if you can never be separated once you're elect, if you can never be separated from Christ, then how are these branches who are connected to the vine, then by the father, God, the father severed from the vine. Again, let me reiterate, there is no sinner that has ever, ever been connected to Jesus. There's no sinner that's dead in trespasses and sins that can be defined as in Christ. You cannot be defined as in Christ. So these are people in John 15 that were once in Christ, but because they chose to produce no fruit, they were severed by God, the father, and they were thrown into a pile to be burned. That's judgment. Okay. So there are holes here that we're, we're seeing, but here's the question I wanted to get to you today, because now that you have a, 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 a cursory knowledge or basic understanding of this system of, uh, Calvinism, what you need to recognize is they believe that there is no free will of man. Everything takes place under the sovereign decree of the almighty God. They don't believe that him knowing what will happen is different than him determining what will happen. This is a big point. So catch this now, because it's not just about salvation. I know there's a lot of you watching me because you never were a Baptist. You never were Calvinist. You didn't come out of that. You've never heard this stuff and you don't understand what I'm talking about. So let me go even further than the salvation issue. This will make you, this will make your toes curl when I tell you this, because the, those that are faithful Calvinists that believe, uh, everything that takes place, takes place under the decree of of the almighty God. So that we have to say, have to say, and, and listen, I have had conversations with these people, not dumb people. These are intelligent people that have, they read the word, they study the word, but they will hold to that. Every single thing that takes place in the world takes place under the decree, the sovereign decree of the almighty God. He doesn't allow it to happen. He causes it to happen by his decree. Meaning every rape that has ever taken place in the history of the world or will take place, they happen by the decree of God. We don't know why we don't understand his purpose in the end, but God has decreed that those things, the Holocaust, even the Holocaust, every murder, all abuse, all rape, Every wicked thing that has ever taken place in history is happening by the sovereign decree of almighty God. Now we're finite beings, so we can't understand his purpose. Our minds are not set to understand his infinite purpose. One day we will, but we just don't right now. But anything that takes place, anything that takes place, Hitler rising to power, 
destroying nations, killing six million Jews. All of that was under the decree of God. It was his plan. It was his plan. All of the young girls in Nigeria that are being taken by Boko Haram and abused and turned into slaves, that is God's plan. It is his sovereign decree. We don't know why. This is what, this is what they believe. They have to believe this to stay consistent. And they do. And they, they're not, a sh- they tell you they do. It's not like a secret. It's not like I've uncovered something that they, they say it publicly. They say it publicly. Of course, we believe that everything. It's not just that God knows the future. He decrees the future. He determines the future. Everything, not just the good things, everything. Who puts cancer on little children? According to them, God does. It's under his decree. It is under his determination. We don't know why. It's his purpose. We're not supposed to know why until we get to eternity. But he's working out a plan. He's working out a plan. I don't know if you can start to see how how evil this is. But it is evil. And they'll say, well, you know, God is judging sin. And it's holy and just and good when God judges sin. I agree with that. But does that mean that every wicked thing that's ever happened happens because God has determined it to come to pass? Okay, here comes the devastating question that you need to have in your spirit. Now that you understand this fullness, and I know there's so much that you, I'm just giving you like a a little sliver off the top of the iceberg of Reformed theology. Uh, You could study it for years and still not get through all of it, but... I'm just a cursory knowledge, a small, small, small understanding, small. And I don't even, I don't claim to understand everything. I I understand this. There's lots, there's lots to learn, lots to learn. But let me show you the question that you need to ask because it's, it's a very, very important question. Okay. The let me give you the question and then let's break it down. Here's the question. Here's the devastating question that destroys the theology. Number one and the only one, put it in the comments in all capital letters. Do you believe that God is utterly holy? That's the question. Do you believe that God is utterly holy? Please type that in the comments section and leave it there. For those that are listening on the podcast, you can just say it out loud if you want. Put it in your Bible. Do you believe that God is utterly holy? It's the only question. It's the only question you need to ask, and I'm going to show you why in a moment. This is called logical thinking. Do you believe that God is utterly holy? Okay, so why are we asking that? Here's why we're asking it. Well, first of all, we believe that God's utterly holy. The answer to that question should be yes. And even the, even the Calvinist should, would say yes. Of course, I believe that God is holy. Why do we believe it? Well, the Bible says he is. The Bible says that God is holy. Let's look now at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. Very important when we answer this question, we answer it by the, by the word of God. And the question, do I believe is God utterly holy? You better believe I do. 
because the Bible says that he is, God has declared, God has declared that he is holy. First Peter 1 16. Listen now, since it is, well, let, let me go back before that. Verse 13, first Peter 1 13, and I'll read to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see that? Verses 15 and 16 there's, it states the case for you, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And by the way, that's a quotation of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, right? Carlo is already on it, already on it. So God is holy. The Bible says he's holy. He claims to be holy. But here's, here's the question as we define this, and I'm, I'm reading this. Um, I'm going to give you this uh, from the Greek language here because it's important. Well, what does holy mean? What does holy mean? The, the Greek word used here, and of course, this is a quotation from the Hebrew, but in the Greek, uh, it is the word uh, hagios, hagios. This is the word for holy in the Greek language, hagios. It means moral quality. I'm going to give you the semantic range of this Greek word. Moral quality, consecrated. Now listen, ceremonially acceptable to God. Get this now. It means acceptable to God. The saints, holiness, consecrated, set apart. Set apart from what? set apart from wickedness, set apart from wickedness. I mean, I could break down all the, the holiness stuff from the New Testament, come out from among them and be separate. From among who? The heathen, the heathen. Holiness or the word holy just means to be consecrated, set apart, morally acceptable to God, acceptable to God. Okay, okay. So we, we've got that now. God is holy and everything he does is acceptable and everything that's in him is acceptable. It's morally righteous. No sin will glory in his presence. Okay. Set apart from wickedness, separated from wickedness. All right. Here, here's, where the, here's where it starts to break down. Are you ready? John chapter one. John chapter one. Let's get, let's get into this quickly now. In, I'm starting with verse one, you know where I'm at, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now this is very important here, you're ready for this, verse three. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hold on a second. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Okay, here's where it hugely breaks down. Are you ready for this? If we believe like they believe, then a massive question sits in front of our face that Carlo recognizes on YouTube. If God, as we just said, is totally and utterly holy, then the real question is, where did sin come from? Where did evil come from? We just defined holiness, hagios, morally acceptable to God, ceremonially righteous. We know what it is. We know what it is. Separation from wickedness, separation from sin. So write it in the comments. Here's your massive question. Keep it in your spirit. Ask it of the word. Where did wickedness, evil, sin come from? Because remember this, as I just, I read you John 1 for a reason. The reason was all things were made through him and without him, that is Jesus, was nothing made that was made. Big, big problem here because even uh, Richard says the snake in the garden, which was Satan. Here's the problem. Satan, Lucifer, when he was an angel, are created beings. They're all created beings. Angels are created beings. The angels that left and became fallen angels, they're created beings. Nothing existed before God, before the word that was with him in the beginning. The Trinity, God is eternal. He's not a created being. He's existed for eternity and everything that was made was made through him. So here's the massive glaring question. If that's true, where did wickedness come from? Because if you are consistent, like you have to be with everything else as a Calvinist, then you'd have to say somehow evil, wickedness, sin was in God was in Christ from the beginning. That's the only way it could come out of him to create something that is evil or has evil in it. Because if there was nothing else, if there was nothing else that existed except them, and they're the only ones that created, if that's, the, if that's it, then what do you say? God, you, you can't say that you believe that God is utterly holy and also say, because, because, because remember this now, again, if you're a Calvinist, no one has free will. Your actions have been predetermined by God, by his sovereign decree. So people are just doing what God decreed they would do. You don't have a free will to choose whatever you want. It's all God's decree. So they don't believe man is a free will being. Okay. So that means that God created men to be wicked. So, so the question that we have to answer is this spirit of wickedness. Okay. Answer me in the comments section. Answer me in the comments section. Is God displeased with wickedness? Is God displeased with wickedness? Does sin anger him?
Will he punish it? Yes. Yes, he will. So if he believes that it's wicked, evil, it's displeasing to him, and as a result, he'll punish it, where did it come from? That Look, look at Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Against spiritual forces of evil. Did you ever ask yourself this question? Where did spiritual forces of evil come from? Where do we get spiritual forces of evil? Nothing existed before God. Nothing existed before the word who was in the beginning with God. Where do we get spiritual forces of evil? (laughs) Now, here's the funny thing. (laughs) I heard a very intelligent, and and I don't say that tongue in cheek, Calvinist trying to answer this question in a sermon. You know what the answer was? Well, all that evil is, all that wickedness is, is the absence of anything. (laughs) That was honestly the answer. It's the absence of, of, of where God is. It's the absence of his goodness. It's the absence of his power. It's the absence of any, anything. That's what evil is. That's what that really, it's just nothingness. Evil is nothingness. Wickedness is nothingness because if it is, then what are we wrestling against? The Bible doesn't say we're wrestling against nothingness. It it doesn't say we're wrestling against the void. It doesn't say we're wrestling against absence. It says we're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Spiritual wickedness is not nothingness. It's activity. It's actual activity. Okay, we know that the angels were created beings. How did they fall? Did God make them rebel? It it makes no sense. Did God put wickedness in their hearts? If he did, where did he get that wickedness if he's holy? Where did he get it? Did he create it? Did God create wickedness? Did God make rebellion? Did God make sin and sickness and power? Did God do that? Or did the angels have a choice, a free will to rebel against God? And did pride fill the heart of Lucifer? And he make a choice to say, I will be like the most high. I will ascend into heaven. I will be seated on the throne. And God seeing his pride and his wickedness from his own free will said, you will not and cast him out of heaven. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Did Adam and Eve get placed into a perfect garden and then God sent Satan to them? And then God caused them to fall into wickedness? God caused them to fall into sin? If so, where did that sin come from? God created it? How did an utterly holy God, utterly righteous, create wickedness? He did not. What he did do is create beings who have a free will to do what they want to do and set a standard. Notice this, unless God had set a standard, there could be no wickedness. 
right? There's no, you can't break the law if there's no law. I want you to put that in the comments quickly. I'm almost done. I'm about to pray for you. Put this in the comments though. You can't break the law if there's no law. I, it's not, I'm not going to go to jail for lifting up my hands and waving them around too fast because there's no law that says you cannot lift up your hands and wave them around too fast or you're going to jail. I can't break a law that's not there. You can't break the law if there's no law. So when God sets a standard, that's his law. That's his law. When you abide by the law, that's righteousness and holiness. Righteous actions, holiness. So what did God do? He didn't just set Adam in the garden. He set Adam in the garden with Eve and then gave them a standard, gave them a law. What was the law? You can eat from any of the other trees in the garden, just not this one. Don't eat from this one, right? So what did he do? He presented him with choice. If you want to follow me, if you want to live for me, if you want to, then here's what you've got to abide by. If you don't abide by it, you've now entered into wickedness. You see that you can't break a law if there's no law. So God set the law in motion. This is what it takes to live in a pleasing way toward me. You see it. God created a man and a woman who had a free will to make choices because God is not evil and God does not create evil, nor does God tempt man with evil. The Bible says, so God, that is not who God is. He's utterly holy, hagios, totally, utterly acceptable, right, righteous. He would not punish something that is him. He's not going to punish himself. There is spiritual wickedness. There is evil in the earth. Satan is a real being. Fallen angels, demons, real beings. God did not create them. They chose to rebel against him. God did not create sin. Men did when they rebelled against God's law. You see. And they did that by their own free choice by their own free choice. <clears throat> and I know there's, I know it's a bigger conversation, but <clears throat> what you really need to understand is that this is the question. I've asked it to multiple, multiple people. And I say this because there truly is a massive trend again, back towards uh, reform Calvinism among Gen Y, Gen Z, and even Gen X, because there's so many questions, people that want to know why, why, why. Unfortunately, Pentecostals have not given a why to anybody. Many, many of them. They can't answer why we believe what we believe. That's why we launched Miracle Word University and you can throw up the lower third. I don't care. Self-promotion. It's because I know it will help people. It will help people. I know it's a bigger conversation. I know there's questions. I know, that, but I've never heard anybody give. That's why I'm giving you this question. No one can present that I've heard unacceptable answer to the holiness of God, to his utter and total holiness. Sin was not in God. Sin was not in Christ. 
not sinful beings. They're holy. They're totally righteous. Be holy for I am holy. And so there's, you know, all the things that go along with it, the mockery of the Holy Spirit's activity in the New Testament church. Well, tongues is not for day that ceased. God doesn't work miracles anymore. All these, all these different things. Richard, you sound like you might be on mind medication. I'm just consult a professional. I don't believe rabies is demons. And I don't know about a, a rabid raccoon that's head and eyes glowed. I don't, I, I don't know, Richard. I, Scroll back up for Chris Michelson. I want to see what he said. Great teaching, bro. I, I can't see it. Pentecostals now have a mixed theology. of It's true. It's because there have not been teachers sufficiently teaching our young people why we believe what we believe in the Pentecostal tradition. We've been viewed as fools because we believe in the Pentecostal message. Because nobody stepped up to the plate. I mean, there's been, there's been a few, but at large, where are the Pentecostal universities? Where, where, where are we teaching our young people how to rightly divide the word of God? Where are we teaching our young people what it means to answer these questions from the word of God? And I said, well, I had a dream and the Lord spoke to me that this is the case. That's, that's not the answer. We answer by the eternal word of God. We answer by the inspired, inerrant word of the living God. That's how we answer. And so we have to answer these questions. This is one of the biggest one that's hitting our, do you realize there's Christian universities that have to basically say, you know, Pentecostal universities that have actually had to say like, we are not allowing, we're, we're Pentecostal. We're not allowing this kind of doctrine to be taught in our classrooms. They've had to reprimand teachers. And we've got young kids that come out of Pentecostal revivals in church. They get excited. They get called into the ministry. They go to these universities. They come out. They don't even believe the, you know, they don't even believe in the Holy Ghost anymore. As though we're foolish to believe in the mighty working power of the Holy Ghost and fire that we believe that Jesus is still doing what he's always done, that the Holy Spirit is still doing what he's always done. It's available to everybody today. Jesus Christ is the same. He didn't cease in his operation. Not only does the narrative of the New Testament show that, go read church history. The early church fathers were seeing signs, wonders, and miracles. The early church fathers. <laughs> All, go read Polycarp. Go read Ignatius. Go read uh, uh, Papias. Go read, you know, go read these guys. Go read Irenaeus. Go read Thomas Aquinas and see that they were seeing people receive miracles in the early first century, second century, third century churches. They, they, they didn't fall away when the last apostle died, John on the island of Patmos. John being the last apostle of the, of the 12 that died. So well, that, when, the, when the last apostle died, that all fell away. No, it didn't. And not only does the, the early church show us that, the... Uh, the, the church history uh, that we can read shows us that. They were seeing it continue on and they wrote about it. They wrote about it. It's still happening today, by the way. It's still happening today. 
God is still moving and we need people that are on fire. You know, don't tell me, and I'm looking, Chris Michelson's a great example of this. Uh, if you ever look at his pages, you see the crusades that he does, you see what he's doing overseas and how he's blessing the world through evangelism. Don't tell me that there's the same uh, push to evangelize if you've got a Calvinist mindset where you believe that uh, people are either chosen or they're not chosen. And that one way or the other, one way or the other, because they're elect, they're going to come into the kingdom of God. So it doesn't really matter what I do. Don't tell me there's the same push to spread the gospel and evangelize if you hold that that mindset. I actually heard Dr. John MacArthur, who is a Calvinist, who is a reformed theologian. And somebody asked him in a question and answer uh, session, well, if we know that people are elect and if we know that God's chosen them, and if we know that, uh, you know, that they will all not be able to resist the gospel and they will get the gospel, why should we evangelize? You know what his answer was? This was his answer. We should evangelize because the Bible tells us to. And I agree with that thought. We should evangelize because we're commanded to in the word of God. But should there not be a fire burning into the heart of every believer that Jesus is coming soon? And if Jesus is coming soon and there's a world that doesn't have the gospel and there's a world that is not ready to see Jesus when he comes, should that not burn on the inside of every Christian that we've got to do what we can do now before it's too late to see people saved so they don't end up in hell? Jesus pointed to the harvest 2000 years ago and said to his disciples, truly the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What was the, now what was the, uh, the prayer pray that God would send laborers into the harvest field. Why? Why would we have to pray for that? Why would we have to pray that God would send laborers into his harvest field? It's his harvest. It's his field. If we're Calvinist, why wouldn't we just say that God is going to sovereignly raise up the laborers that are needed in order to reap the elect? that are out there who've not yet heard the gospel. That doesn't even make logical sense. Why would I ever pray that? God send laborers into your harvest field, even though you already know how you're gonna reap every elect person, and though, though you already know that you're gonna get the gospel to every person you've elected from the beginning of time. Why would that even be a prayer? Why would that even be a prayer? The harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest, that laborers would sent, be sent into his harvest field. Listen, if the harvest was plenteous and the fields were white back then, imagine what they're like now. Imagine what they're like now. That's why this is such a dangerous, and I believe, demonic mindset. I believe it's a demonic mindset. You know what? And I truly believe this. You could go read his institutes if you'd like, John Calvin's institutes. I believe if John Calvin was alive today, he wouldn't be Calvinist enough for the guys that are Calvinist. I promise you, I believe that. I've talked to different scholars about that. They laugh and agree. Yeah, it's probably true. The guys that are Calvinist now, even John Calvinist, 
John Calvin wasn't Calvinist enough. <laughs> I mean, faith believes God will get his will done either way. And there are a lot of people that believe like faith. Well, God, God, God will get it all done. The ones that are supposed to go to heaven will get there. The ones that aren't won't. There's people that believe that. I'm not one of those people. I am one of those who believes that every Christian has a free will. You know what's, you know what's crazy? You ever wonder? Why will God have to wipe every tear from our eye when we get to heaven? Why would we be crying? He's not going to remember our sins. They're forgotten. They're washed away. They're removed from, our iniquities have been removed from us as far as the East is from the West. Our sins are thrown into a sea of forgetfulness. Why would we have tears in our eyes when we get to heaven? You know why? Because there's a different kind of judgment for the believer than there is for the unbeliever. The judgment for the believer is not based upon our sins, but, but, but based upon our fruit that we've produced in the kingdom, our righteous actions. He will judge our works. Some will burn up like chaff in the fire. Others will come out gold on the other side. Things that were worthwhile that we did for the Lord will come out gold on the other side. There's an old poem that says, there's one life, it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. That's what it says. You know what it means? Some of the stuff we're doing, it'll be burned up in the fire. It won't mean a thing in eternity. But some of the things we're doing, they are eternally valuable. Souls that are saved. People that are being changed by the gospel of Christ. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want my works to come out gold on the other side. I want to lay my crown at Jesus' feet. I don't want my works to burn up in the fire like trash. I want what I've done to be valuable and meaningful in eternity. And I know that's your prayer as well. Nick makes a great point. Why would Jesus say to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if God's will is always done? I want my works to count in eternity. There's my friend, Pastor Aaron Butler, who I love so much, doing a great job out on the West Coast. I love you. I want to pray for those of you that are watching, those of you that are listening today, because we know that the time's running short. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And we have got to do what we're called to do before it's too late. Time is literally running out. You know what Jesus said all the way back then to his disciples in John chapter nine, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day for the night comes where no man can work. The night comes where no man can work. I don't want to get to that place where time has run out and I can't do any more work. And I look back and think, man, I should have been more busy. I should have done what God wants. I should have. I don't want to get back and have regrets and say, man, I, I was too quiet. I was too timid. I was too afraid of what they'd think, of what they'd say. When lives are hanging in the balance, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. So I want to pray for you today uh, that a new boldness and a spirit of wisdom and revelation would come upon you. That you, as you study the word of God, it would put a fire in your spirit to reap the loss before Jesus comes back. 
and that you'd have a, a hunger to study the word of God like you never have. Get it in you. Be able to give an answer with boldness, but with compassion and love. Notice the Bible says with gentleness and respect. We're not out to argue. We're not out to bash one another, but we are out to know the truth and to explain the truth to those that need it with gentleness and respect, the Bible says. Father, I pray for every person watching. I pray for all those who are listening on the podcast. I pray that today a new fire would come in to every one of those that are listening and watching. A new hunger for the things of God, a new hunger for the word of God to study, to put it in them and to do what the Lord has called them to do. Lord, if there's people that are watching me, that are listening to me, that they don't know what they're called to do, they don't know what they're supposed to do. Let today be the day that you begin to speak to them. Let them hear your voice. Let them know what they're called to step out and do. I pray in Jesus name that you would open doors for every one of us to accomplish our purpose. Open doors that no man can shut and shut doors that no devil can open in Jesus name. We thank you for that. We give you praise and glory for what you're doing in this world and in America and around the world. Blow your breath from heaven one more time. Blow souls in from every direction. Let the greatest harvest that's ever been reaped be reaped now before Jesus comes back. We thank you, Lord, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. If you receive it, if you believe it, put some fire in the comments section. Tiffany, I think Adam's back under a different name. He just can't stay away from our broadcast. If you want to catch repent there before he gets away. I love you, Brian. My friend, Pastor Brian Wright. Love you very much. Thanks for all you're doing. Listen, before I go today, Lily, I love you. We're going to give you an opportunity to sow a seed into this ministry. We're getting ready to go to Boston, Crossroads Community Church. It's in Fitchburg, just outside of Boston, but nobody knows where Fitchburg is, so I say Boston, unless you're from Fitchburg or Lemonsta, at the Lemonsta Starbucks. Um, <laughs> Pastor Jordan Work, I love you and Elizabeth too. If you'd like to sow a seed, you'd like to partner with us, there's the info on the screen, miracleword.com, Cash App, PayPal, hashtag donate, Venmo, whatever, Zelle, cryptocurrency, all those ways are available at miracleword.com as well. And um, I, I heavily want to encourage you to stand with us. Time's running out. Do something that matters with your money. Go after the lost. Go after the lost. And watch what God will do in your life when you put him first. It's amazing. It's amazing to see God exalt his people, lift them higher. Love you a lot. Congratulations on your reward coffee. If you guys missed out on these, I don't know if there's any left in the store. Do you know, Tiff? There's a couple left in the store. Only 20 of them. You got to get them before they go. The Victory Tribe Yeti mugs are available at shop.miracleword.com. There's only 20. I don't know how many are gone. There's probably only a few left. Get them before they go. Don't forget, tomorrow, I'm back with you again in the morning. Carolyn's back in the afternoon. You know what's coming up very soon? I'm gonna ask you guys to be a part of this. Even if you're not a partner with our ministry, I wanna ask you to be a part of this one night revival. We're calling it the Victory Tribe Homecoming Weekend. 
It's November the 12th. That's a Friday night in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, right outside of Allentown. We want to see you for this one night meeting. Where is it going to be? It's going to be at Central Assembly of God in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, November the 12th. That's a Friday night at 7 p.m. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait uh, to see what God's going to do there. And then for those of you that are already signed up, it's full, but our partners are joining us on Saturday, 12 to 3. It's going to be a good lunch. I'm just telling you, we're going to have some cool stuff for you there. It's going to be amazing. Thank you to everybody that's sewing. Thank you to everybody that's standing with us. For this month, everybody that would like to receive the offer for September, which is coming to an end today. Isn't today the last day of September? Brother Kenneth Copeland, the laws of prosperity. It's for your gift of $85 or more. If you'd like to receive it, go to miracleword.com forward slash offer. Yeah, Marcus, we're glad you're watching uh, from Europe. And yes, thank God for the internet. So what, it's about 6 p.m. where you're at right now? Or is it about 6 o'clock? Thanks for watching. Thanks for always being, being on the broadcast. Tell me again where you're at in Europe. I can't remember. Is it Sweden, Switzerland? Where are you at? By the way, as Marcus is telling me, made me think we're getting ready to expand miracle word TV again, all into greater Asia, uh, 90 million more homes. Is that right? 90 million more homes, Sweden. That's what it was. I remember now 90 million more homes in greater Asia. And then into all the islands of the Caribbean. I am, I am blown away by what God's doing through, through, uh, his own power through this ministry. It's, it's, it's amazing the doors that are opening. Tell me, Tiff, so Iraq, the Philippines, India, Pakistan. It's amazing. Some areas of China. So it's, it's, it's a miracle what God's doing. And people are being saved every single week. And uh, thank you for everybody that's standing with us. It's a mind-blowing thing to watch God work so swiftly. And as, as Marcus said, thank God for the internet. We're touching the world with this broadcast, but also now we're touching the world with the TV broadcast. And uh, I'm, th I'm so thankful to the Lord. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. It's wonderful. You guys have a wonderful day. I love you so very much. I'm back live again in the morning. Carolyn's back live in the afternoon. Have a powerful day. I'll talk to you again very soon. Later, guys. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.